Welcome everyone, this is Sasha, SashaTalks.com on Moving Mountains. Today we'll explore the book Surviving Hiroshima, A Young Woman's Story, which is an unforgettable human drama and a moving memory of Kalaria Polchikov, a young Russian girl and her family who endured a lifetime of struggle with the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, representing an end as well as a new beginning. The book is written by her son, Anthony Drago, in collaboration with Douglas Wellman. Joining me in conversation today is Anthony Drago, who paints the realities that his mother survived leading to her, her arrival in the United States. Get a glimpse into reliving history through the eyes of a survivor, as documented in the book, Surviving Hiroshima, published by Boutique of Quality Book. The book is available on Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble, IPG Books. Members can also visit survivinghiroshima.com. Welcome, Anthony, to Moving Mountains. Well, thank you for having me, Sasha. Yes. It just appears that this is a timely event where we get to discuss the 75th anniversary of surviving Hiroshima when the atomic bombing took place in history. And you have written a book that highlights your mom's experiences that have been passed down in record. And would you like to provide an overview as we deep dive into the nature of the book? Yes. Uh, the overview would be um, that um, the, the surviving Hiroshima, a, a, one, a young woman's story, is about my mother who uh, at a very, very young age, at three months, was uh, forced out of her uh, uh, country of Russia and uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution her parents fled Russia and ended up in Hiroshima, Japan, as immigrants or or stateless people. Um, my mother was raised as a uh, Japanese, basically. Um, she had to learn the language and uh, just basically all the cultures and. Uh, she had a great life there uh, with my, with her parents, and um, uh, then the bombing occurred, and it changed a lot. So the story is about her, her survival through that experience. So she was already in her early twenties when the event took place, and prior to her being raised from the time she was a baby onward in Japan because your parents had left communist Russia. But did she have an impression that she was going to spend the rest of her life in Japan until this event occurred? Yes, absolutely. Um, so when she, when she arrived, when she was basically four months old, uh, her, uh, she, she was raised there, and she didn't know anything different uh, all the way up to going through school, learning the piano um, and uh, getting uh, an education and 
learning the culture, but it was an automatic thing because she was so young and uh, with her siblings also. So there was no, that's all she knew. So that, yeah. And when we look back at the actual event that happened, which is also documented on your site, survivinghiroshima.com, and on the media sites that support your book, the pictures are pretty graphic. The descriptions are very graphic of children that had passed, people who had incurred bruises, wounds, and it was only a matter of time that part of the population was being turned over. And your mom had the advantage because she spoke English that granted her an opportunity to contribute and part, be part of the U.S. Air Force. Is that so? And I believe your uncle Nikolai was also a soldier. Yes. And one thing about this book, Sasha, is that it ha- it's multifaceted. There's a lot going on. And um, in regards to that, uh, I'll go just uh, mention about my uncle. My uncle Nick... Um, he was the middle child. Before the war started, he went with some missionary um, back to the United States. And when I say back, for the missionaries to go back to the United States because they were Caucasian. And my, my grandparents let him go because to get an education in the United States, he wanted to go to medical school. But he had to graduate high school first, obviously. So he was very young. He was 16. So two years later, that's when the war started. The bombing happened in, in, um, in Pearl Harbor, and it started World War II with the Japanese. Uh, he completed, uh, graduated and, uh, high school, and he immediately uh, signed on uh, with the U.S. Army. And he ended up uh, at first mentioning that he knew Japanese. Well, the recruiter, who was a, wasn't an army person, it was a, just a female worker there, said, I don't, I, I don't want you working here uh, for, the United, for the U.S. Army because my son is there and I don't, I don't trust you because you lived in Japan. Well, he went to a different recruiting depot, didn't mention he knew Japanese. They immediately... And, you know, um, he immediately joined up and he went through basic training and ended up uh, serving in the Pacific as an as a uh, in the intelligence unit of the Signal Corps. And that's what he did in the South Pacific. He was listening in to coded messages by the Japanese and um, because he knew fluent Japanese. So he he ends up uh, winning the uh, uh, being awarded the. Uh, Bronze Star for Bravery. Uh, that's a brief overview of what that's all about. Um, in regards to my mother, um, she, after the, after the bombing, uh, when things calmed down, she ended up going to Tokyo um, and uh, working for General MacArthur's um, staff and ended up uh, being interviewed by the strategic bombing survey that was being done by the United States government. And she was the only English-speaking victim of the bomb. So they were really interested in her. And uh, during, okay, well, during that time, 
she was approached by a captain who is a combat artist and he wanted to uh, it was he wanted to paint her in a painting and while she's describing what she saw and that painting ultimately ended up in the Pentagon and uh, with uh, with my mom's name on it and it is in the book uh, it took me a long time to find that painting and to verify its existence but it was hanging in the Pentagon uh, from the early 50s to about seven years ago where it was transferred as part of the US Air Force uh, uh, art collection and it is presently hanging in on display at uh, the Air Force Base in Texas and uh, Lackland Air Force Base so uh, that's just an overview of some of the facts of the book it's wonderful to see how art lives on did you travel to the Pentagon at any point when it was hanging there to witness it well this is what's well I, I wanted to but I was so involved with writing the book and and getting that project off the ground I had a lot of contact with the uh, historian um, who uh, helped me locate it and um, I was invited to go to the Pentagon in fact I can I talked to the local congressman in my area and he was interested to go with me but I wanted to wait till the book came out um, and and travel there uh, to see it but now I'm gonna to have to travel in Texas which is fine you know and, and uh, but I'm definitely going to go to the Pentagon also wonderful revisiting your uncle Nick also has his account shared with public sources he was convinced that when he would return to Hiroshima his family would be they would have passed on but fortunately all of them were able to reunite and then they moved on to Tokyo so before the US Air Force comes into the picture and they're in Tokyo were there any attempt were there any attempts made on taking their family out or did your mom think that they would survive Tokyo given what happened in Hiroshima oh yeah uh, are you talking about health wise is that what you're talking about or health wise economically just knowing that you're an American family because according to your Nick, uncle Nick's account everybody in the family was treated as one of their own in Japan but once the events played out historically were they did they feel ostracized in any sense uh, absolutely not you, you have to understand they had very peaceful lives uh, in Hiroshima and in Japan um, they had wonderful neighbors they had uh, it there was no um, even when the war started uh, there was no uh, indication of any kind of a, a problem because they knew that they weren't a, the Japanese people there knew that they were stateless they were Russian immigrant they weren't American but they were Caucasian um, after um, there was a point my grandfather was uh, imprisoned as a spy uh, before the bomb uh, probably two years before that and he was uh, incarcerated for about 12 months um, so that was tough but but the uh, the people 
that was the government. That was the Japanese Imperial Army um, that was was uh, suspicious of him. But the neighbors were never. And and after the bombing, you got to understand that everything disappeared. So thousands of people were killed, and there was nobody but the family. So they picked up and left and went to, uh, you know, uh, the hillside areas away from the bombing activity uh, or the uh, downtown because there was nothing left. Um, so there was no neighbors anymore, okay? Now, after the bombing and after my Uncle Nick found them in Hiroshima, which was a miracle in itself, and that's portrayed in the book, um, my Uncle Nick found, uh, t- transported them um, later on to Tokyo and in fact my grandfather was given a job um, because obviously he knew Japanese and, and Russian language and English as the uh, at the officers club as the manager my mom immediately worked as an interpreter and typist for General MacArthur's staff and that's how it played out there was no hard feelings even in Tokyo there was nothing like that what I found to be very intriguing was listening to your mother's account that she shared with NPR, I believe, back in 2005. And she touched upon that even some of her friends did not know her past, and there was no need to bring it up or share it, that you accept a piece of history as a part of life, and then you move on. But how would she feel, did she know early on before she passed back in 2014 that there would be a book coming out years later in her memory? Yes, and... And when I, okay, I was brought up as a young boy with Japanese culture and Russian culture and American culture and a combination. And just to give you an example, uh, I, remember, I remember when I was in elementary school, um, I went to a parochial Catholic school in Los Angeles. And I remember going to school with a, a sack lunch, brown sack lunch. And I remember one day I would have tuna fish the other day the next day i would have peanut butter jelly and then uh, rotated in there i would have seaweed and rice and it it, so and people would look at me and said what what are you doing you're getting and then i'd have russian food proshki and and different other things and i was the only kid that would ever have that kind of food but it slowly became normal to me well all during that time my mom was telling me stories and all that well when I became an adult I told my mom I said you know you should write a book well she never did and I told her someday I would and I said that can you doc can you write down some quotes and all this and and we started doing a diary and so I have a lot of handwritten notes from my mom, and then coupled with that, things I've, I've uh, uh, records that are on the internet and uh, military uh, paperwork, um, and lots of lots of pictures I have of my of of them in Japan. Um, so yes, she would be very proud of this. Um, the reason she said that is because number one when she first came to the United States and she met my father as a GI in Tokyo they fell in love in Tokyo and eventually my mom came over and and was married actually she was married on the bride and groom radio show 
out of Burbank. And <laughs> so, yeah, and also she was on Queen for a Day with Jack Bailey. <laughs> so a- anyway, back then. Um, so there was a lot of publicity. If you uh, go back to old newspaper articles, there was just tons of write-ups of, of my mom. She would, I, I, I always just make the comment that she was a basic rock star uh, after she came back because everybody wanted a piece of her. Everybody wanted to know information of how she made it out of Hiroshima. So she was on numerous radio shows. In fact, she was on a radio show out of New York with the tail gunner of the Ninola Gay called George Caron. And so, and they conversed. Um, Art Linkladder, Hugh Downs, a lot of different people interviewed her. So that sort of calmed down a little bit. And she said, you know, she doesn't want to be in a limelight anymore. So what happened, she's just started to have, have a regular married life. And occasionally, to keep her Japanese real crisp and ongoing, she would sneak up behind a uh, uh, Japanese gardeners uh, and used to start talking and then they turn around and just about fall over because she spoke perfect Japanese and when I say perfect I mean old-school Japanese to the point uh, that sometimes some of the Japanese people in the United States could not understand her because it was so clean it was so sophisticated where there was no slang to the to the word and um uh yeah it's it's just she would really be proud for the audience how would you describe her personality what type of mom was she was she into jokes was she more reserved was she shy but for her hobbies and interests she was fun she was outgoing she she was respectful. She had was a, a very religious. She was sophisticated in a lot of ways. Very polite. Very. And when I say sophisticated, I mean very. How she dressed, proper. That's the only word I could think of. But you're talking about you know the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and it was just she was just sophisticated, and she talked very nice. I mean very using correct, proper pronunciation, and she loved music. She was a pianist. My grandfather was a violinist, taught violin, and uh, remind me to tell you about a violin. (laughs) (laughs) Acknowledging her personality and her life aspirations, what were some tenets from her character that she instilled in you and how you raised your children? I would say respecting history, respecting other people's opinions. She was never a showboat. She she was reserved, but she was outgoing too. Um, she instilled upon me honesty, politeness, respect for elders, respect for God, and respect for music, and uh, the utmost respect for your heritage which she always said she had many. So, yeah, uh, it, she was, it was really interesting growing up and, and watching her teach me. Uh, one thing I want to bring up is one thing that I remember when I was young, she always taught me to 
endure pain. When I say that, you would some people get taken back, but she endured a lot of pain, emotional and visual and physical during her experience. So how she taught me to control my emotion of pain or having pain, she would tickle me and tell me, try not to laugh. And that's how she, she taught me. And it really did something to my psyche because I could honestly say it helped me in different ways. You know, if I broke my leg or yeah, I just remember back, you know, what my mom told me, hey, just endure the pain. It'll go away. It'll go away. It's just strange. It's, it's something I had to bring up. Thank you for referencing that. I recall watching a segment where one of the first ladies commented that in response to children, that children tend to mimic how adults respond to pain or anything that happens. So if you fall down and you start crying or yelling, the children will start mimicking that when it happens to them. You also touch upon your mom's faith in religion, and your book, Surviving Hiroshima, A Young Woman's Story, is about resilience and it stresses perseverance. What do you do when life turns against humanity, even if it's for a situational period of time? What guidance would you have for those that may be going through a personal or a global transition where they feel that instead of playing the victim, they could take the power back in their hands? Well, the one thing my mom, I remember my mom saying is controlling the moment and knowing that you're going to leave that moment and go on. You're always going forward. So you don't look back, you move forward. And, and if you're in a bad time in your life, or a bad situation, you try to do the best you can there and keep your mind focused on completing, getting out of that situation and moving forward in, in, a, in a, a proper, controlled, emotional way. Is there anything that you wanted to ask your mom before she passed on, but you hesitated or withheld yourself because you didn't want to provoke or invoke any emotions that would bring back possibly pain from the past? I wouldn't say, I can't think of anything I would, I would have asked my mom or wished I would have asked my mom. The only thing I regret is that I did not start this book, tell her I was going to do this book until she passed. Now, I had it in the back of my mind, but you've got to understand, I had a career. I had three children that I was getting through schooling and college, and, and now I have eight grandchildren. So it's, I don't have any regrets. I just know in my heart that she would be very proud, and I just wish she would have known or seen this book. But I think she does see it. I really do. I was just going to mention that this is such an endearing token that will be paid forward. And I do believe her spirit resides around you. Now, shifting gears, because you did write an actual book, and this is in collaboration with Douglas Wellman. In one of yes. his talks, he mentions that you called him up. So how did you come across Douglas? Okay, <clears throat> this is interesting. I was at a complete loss of how to proceed forward. So I had a, um, I have a, I know a, a, a young lady who uh, has a book and I called her for some advice. And she said, 
I could call my publisher to see if she could give you some guidance and a suggestion. And I go, okay, you know, so she did. And the publisher called me right away. And she said, can you tell me your story? I told her the story. And she said, let me call you back in a couple days. I think I have the perfect person that might be interested. And, I, that's, and that's how I met Doug, because Doug, has, Doug Wellman has a couple books out. And so he called me. I told him the situation of, of what I had, and he dropped everything immediately. And we talked on the phone numerous times, and we collaborated, and he assisted me in doing this. Were there any lessons that you learned about the writing process that could help other prospective writers out there? Well, the first thing is don't give up. There's always a way to get things done, but you've got to start thinking out of the box. I tried different ways. You know, being a, I'm a retired police officer, and I, I was a great writer of reports, putting facts on paper or on a computer. But I, to write a book, for me, you have to have some talent or artistic ability to have your words flow. So that part was a big challenge to me, and I needed somebody to help in that regard, and that's what Doug did. But I, I was constantly fig- trying to figure out what I could do because I don't, I'm not really good at just forgetting about something and say it's too hard. I think my mom taught me to pe- persevere, and even as a detective um, and a police officer, I, I was a very tenacious investigator because I knew the facts were out there. I just had to figure out how to get it. So the big thing is, is thinking out of the box, finding a way to get it done, because there is a way to get it done, and it's all in your mind, and you have to try. In the world of Sasha Talks, Anthony, we also focus on our own self-development and acknowledging your mom history and her contribution in your life. What aspect of self-development that you have you focused on, whether it came through your career or raising your family or nurturing your marriage, that has made you the person that you are today? Well, I think in my develop, uh, uh, developing into an adult, I, I always try to do the right thing for me. It's, it's one of these things where I was never as a teenager, I, w- I was never interested in kind of, I was a risk taker as a teenager, but not, not to the bitter end. So I knew what my limitations were, and I knew what always the right thing to do, not to embarrass myself as a person or my character. So proceeding along throughout my young adult life, I, I knew what I wanted. Okay, to give you an example, when I met my wife and started dating her, I knew she was the one for me. So I remember telling her, and where I told her this, I said, hey, if, when I want to marry you, if we get married, that's it. I, I, I want this to work. Because I was worried, you know, just like, because you see divorces and, and what could happen to marriage. And I said, this is going to be a dedication for me. 
and I want it to be a dedication. So she thought that was sweet but weird. But <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to make sure that not only I could tell her this, but I could tell myself and believe it. And so after that, it was a cakewalk for me because I dedicated myself to the relationship. Same thing with being a police officer, getting on the department, and you see what's happening all around us right now with all this, these problems. I did the right thing all the time. I did what I had to do. It was by policy and all this stuff. And, but I, I knew what was right and wrong. I knew in life in general what was right and wrong. And I just stood by my character and stood by the decision to be the best I could be. I could be. And, and that's the same thing with writing a book. I wanted it to be the best I could do. I think that's really important. You actually beat me to that milestone because I was going to inquire how you have nurtured being married for at least a minimum of 45 years. I was aware that you were retired, but for those who get to check out Anthony online, you look much youthful than you may appear on paper. And I want to, <laughs> and I mean that. And because of those blessings that you have manifested in your own life, I guess we'll wrap it up with the final question that would be for anyone out there. How can they become better at committing to themselves so they could be a better version of themselves out there in the reality and moving forward? I think the answer is, challenging yourself don't be idle have idle thoughts challenge yourself all the time to be better and if you one thing about me i know when i'm wrong in something and i face up to it inside you don't have to face up i don't have to face up to my wife i'm talking about the most important thing is facing up to me or inside you as a person and say, I'm not doing what I set out to do, and why is that? You can't blame that you're not capable. You have to persevere and go forward, like my mom said, and do what you have to do in life, or what you want to do in life. In other words, the one thing my, my wife uh, quotes all the time that Walt Disney used to say is, it's fun doing the impossible and she says that to me all the time because she thinks i do the impossible me writing a book i'll be very honest with you, i shouldn't be doing this why do i say that other people do that right well guess what i did it and the reason i did it is because i was thinking of doing the impossible and that's in me i i i'm proud of myself but um, I'm, I'll probably go on to the next thing. You know, it's just, I, I can't say no to myself. I go on, it's in my DNA, it's in my willpower. It does make sense because that's how you've been able to bring yourself to where we are crossing paths today. Failure is not an option. Failure is just testing and referencing back to what you earlier mentioned, uh, even as I was told while growing up, an idle mind is a dangerous mind. Right. Make the effort well, Sasha, in how you feed it. Right. And Sasha, the thing is, if, if you don't, if, if I want to say I at least tried my best to do something, and that's the important part. Try your best. If you fail, 
you could go on to any other thing, but you got to do what you, what you can do in life or you're going to regret it. Of course, and after hearing your mom's story in the book Surviving Hiroshima, A Young Woman's Story, I am conversation with the author Anthony Draco. Could you please share with audiences how they can get hold of you? I'm on Facebook, uh, Surviving Hiroshima, A Young Woman's Story on Facebook, and we have going on about 2,400 followers. Uh, we're done really good on Facebook, and you could get a hold of me there or the website survivinghiroshima.com and uh, you could send me an email or you could email me through that through the website yeah it was great talking to you Sasha I, I really appreciate the opportunity thank you Anthony for sharing your family's history and I know that there are audiences who will benefit from the 75th anniversary that we mark for the atomic bombings of Hiroshima thank you for joining us on moving mountains <laughs>